This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, exiles, outcasts and outsiders, solitary villains and isolated heroes. (laughs) Okay, so um, after last week's... uh, Mega, <laughs> mega rant, <laughs> mega rant. <laughs> We're still talking about men, uh, but no, not necessarily. Um, uh, this week we are going to be talking about the the lone wolf, the lone gunman trope, um, which we touched Actually, on in we're our not weird talking West about episode. that at all. That's the exact opposite of what we're talking about. I'm so sorry. I completely misread that. Can we just cut all of that, please? Sure, <laughs> no problem. Yeah, sorry. Okay, sorry. Um, so in previous episodes, we talked about the lone wolf, the lone gunman trope. Um, we we mentioned it in our Weird West episode. Um, and as much as we love the space cowboy, there is a different sort of character um, who can fill a similar niche. Um, and that is yes. the solitary uh, or the isolated villain or hero. Yeah, and not all isolated characters are alone by choice. Uh, Sometimes circumstances force them into exile. There's lots of reasons for this and lots of sub-archetypes, which we will get into in a minute. Before we do that, let's have a look at why, as a writer, you might want to include this sort of character or this sort of character journey. Yes. So there's lots of reasons for including this type of character. Uh, For one thing, it can make for really interesting character development. Uh, Most people are not designed for isolation. Even introverts are not designed to be isolated entirely. Um, It's why solitary confinement is in fact a form of torture. Um, And it's also why during medieval times, seeking a hermitage was a form of purification. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I think people did right up into the Renaissance, didn't they? And probably a bit beyond that with Hermitage. And it was mm. a way of living outside society with still a bit of, you know, with, with some freedom, but also with some um, status as well. Um, mm. But but yeah, the, there's various, various different reasons why people might have done it. And uh, in the case of, say... Oh god, why's her name gone out of my head? Anyway, there's some very famous medieval women who basically formed little units of one or two in sort of what we would call hermitages, even though that's not what they would have been called at the time. And yeah. it gave them some status. They had time to write, which is what a lot of these women did. And um, <laughs> they were considered holy women. They were holy women. They were, you know, basically nuns and served the the communities and stuff around them. They tended what were known as holy shrines and things but yeah. yeah it was a way of it was a way of leaving the medieval rat race without actually fully leaving, leaving the medieval rat race if you see what i mean yeah um and it's something which has been obviously done across cultures and various cultures for various different reasons but it, there there was a kind of a religious tie with it um because as you said it, it kind of was it could be done as a sort of a form of a kind of purification because it it's uncomfortable it's not actually natural to our state um and it um 
yeah, it's it's not something that most people will do by choice just for for the funsies, as it were. And I'm not talking about saying, okay, I need to be alone for like a weekend. Um, we're we're going further than here. Yeah. Th- further than that. Okay. Yes. I mean, literally, not okay. talking to another person for weeks on end, kind of. Thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, we only really fully understand who we are in concert with other people. Uh, to paraphrase someone who paraphrases Saint Augustine, a man living alone and removed from the world is easily a saint. It's easy to appear to be a good person when you have not interacted with anyone. The real test of your virtue is other people. And if ain't ain't that the truth? <laughs> yeah, I've got a feeling that might be something that came to me from Kyriakos Machides in the Magus of Strovelis. And I think, yeah, he was talking about, obviously, Saint Augustine wrote a great deal on the subject on various yes. subjects um but yeah this this idea that because you're not constantly being tested by being around other people it's really easy to live a life free of sin and virtue and full of virtue because um there's, there's no one around bugging you for a start yeah absolutely um that's, <laughs> if you <laughs> I mean that is the thing and I think it's also why like if you if you don't particularly like the person you're becoming going offline can really help. Yeah well, that that would kind of be today's modern home. I mean you can obviously go fully off grid can't you. Um, yeah. And sometimes um, that's quite appealing I've got to say but yeah the the whole sort of I'm taking a social media break it's when people do the big announcement of I'm taking a social media break and they, they do it like six times in a row and I'm like, we got it the first time. It's just no one's really that bothered. Yeah. Um, sorry, that was mean. Um, yeah, but, but basically it's just the <laughs> virtue signaling of, oh, look, this is what I'm doing kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I do think, and it's again one of those cases where we're not talking about just a, a sort of casual thing because I think it's it's very healthy for everyone to kind of take a break from large social situations particularly if you're having personal difficulties or you actually need some time to kind of reset um obviously introverts do this semi-frequently but you know to basically say actually i'm taking a step away from social media or i'm actually gonna uh, go away from my family for a little bit or i'm or i'm gonna go to a restaurant on my own or i'm gonna go xyz um it, it can be very very healthy yeah um but you know yeah it's very very easy um to kind of to be a saint as it were when you're when you're kind of on your own because difficulty often comes with other people weirdly enough um (laughs) so it's like at that point you're kind of like well why would anybody spend time with other people well the thing is we're not designed to be alone we are not lone hunters we are not lone survivors um, even the most self-sufficient of us are supposed to interact with each other or we do tend to go a little bit peculiar over time um, yeah so with that in mind isolating a character can be an interesting way to test their strength um, mm-hmm. their strength of character for this uh, give them a tough backstory explain their origins as a villain pit them against nature or create a sympathetic bond with the audience because at some point all of us no matter how surrounded by people we are will have felt isolated yes um on the flip side of that, uh, isolated characters, and we will kind of look into it a little bit more, um, can actually also be quite difficult to write, um, depending on how you want to write them. So a really good example of this was original Batman 
he was obviously he was quite isolated in terms of the fact that he was pretty much doing everything on his own yes he did have Alfred um, and obviously there was a relationship there but for the most part he was a very isolated character and the problem with this as a comic book meant that there was just a lot of monologues which would which could get quite tiring which were quite difficult to read um and so that really created uh kind of a very sim a single kind of tone to the stories that kind of lost people a lot of engagement which is why the character of of robin was first introduced because they wanted someone who could create a back and forth without compromising on on bruce wayne's sort of character as it were because he is a little bit of a you know he is a bit of a lone wolf at the same time um so he's a he's a slightly complicated one so it can actually be quite tough to write an isolated character but there are lots and lots of ways of doing it and it can also be incredibly rewarding um i mean the whole batman thing that's kind of the when i was writing the king's knight that's the the trouble i ran into not the the batman issue as such (laughs) very genre crossover um but i (laughs) distinctly remember sort of like writing gregory and the the bit at the very beginning when he's actually chasing down the bandits who've who've been who've robbed him and left him for dead and Mm. i'm thinking the problem here is I'm not really establishing him as as the as the good guy, the guy we should be rooting for. And it's going to be really difficult to do that because he doesn't like people, he's grumpy, he's misanthropic, he really just wants everyone to just fuck off. Um, yeah. So and to be honest, he doesn't particularly like himself. So no, he's kind of he got doesn't. a biased view of himself as well. He has, yeah. And at this point, I sort of like, okay, I'm going to try adding in a servant character or something. And I sent that scene to Madeline and I'm like, what do you think? Is this this too trite? Does it work? Because I kind of need there to be someone there who isn't going to draw too much attention from him. But at the same time, Mm. it's going to humanise him a bit. And Madeline came back with, do not dare take my character. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I guess that works then. But but yeah, because he was an isolated character. A lot of his isolation was self-imposed, which we'll get into later. But yeah with without at least one person who he was willing to let under his guard um he yeah would have, it would have been an impossible story i don't think it would have been engaging either yeah I, I mean i think i i think you probably would have found a way to make it engaging um but i do think that it would have been a lot more difficult um also to kind of get a sense of the character and probably one of the things that made gregory so interesting as an isolated character because he is still isolated um but you know he there are people who are kind of wedging their way in which is great because you've written an isolated character who's not technically on his own he's kind of isolated in his own mind and the next thing he kind of looks around and there are just people (laughs) just kind of creeping into his life and he's like oh no i'm making connections i think oh no (laughs) i think one reader put it as i'm gregory morsley i do nothing for no one i only care about myself but let me just adopt this abused child jeffrey shawser a scottish (laughs) wife (laughs) and the king (laughs) otherwise i'm by myself and i don't like anyone it really is like that yeah actually yeah that was a fairly accurate summation (laughs) yeah um and i think it's also it plays into a trope that a lot of people really like which is that people actually really really do love the whole um uh isolated character who's isolated 
uh, by their own choice, which we'll get into in a minute, but who is actually kind of um, <laughs> open to having sort of people start to worm their way in and suddenly they're not isolated anymore. Um, people actually really do like that trope um, yeah. and I can completely understand why. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, so there's lots of different, we've talked about some sub-archetypes, but um, mm -hmm. I'm not even sure that's a term, but let's let's call these the, the little sections of the isolated character because we've got some examples here of how you would do it. So let's look at yeah. some of those. Okay, so let's start with the exile. Um, so either some action they took or some personal attribute has caused their society to exile them. Yeah, so this... Now I should add that this can also be their perception of their society to exile them. Um, yeah. But for the most part, it tends to be that, yes, society has actually exiled them for whatever reason. Yeah, and... Um so they've come from a position of knowing what it's like to belong uh, which yeah. will really affect their character arc um, mm. I think there's a big difference between belonging and being literally pushed out mm -hmm. and always having been on the outside as it were yeah um, often this exile is punitive and offers a chance to explore injustice or a rigged um, or you know, or rigged societal pressures. So it's often used with that. Not always, but um, it it does kind of help with that. Yeah. Um, it, it, I think the whole rigid societal pressures thing is is a, an interesting angle. But I mean, sometimes it's their own actions. I mean, let's say you've got a a character who um, starts off in quite a privileged position they're part of a high family in this fantasy world or they've got lots of money or whatever yeah. and they do something which is bad enough i mean maybe they've been a bit of a wastrel but they do something that is bad enough that the rest of their family goes okay we have to cast you out now because you're basically ruining our good name as well um yeah this this is bad enough that we're disowning you um, you're not only being disowned from the family, you're being disowned from the city kind of thing. Off you go yeah. into the wilderness. Yeah. And again, this, it doesn't always have to be very aggressive. So it could, for example, be that the family say, we actually really love you, but we're doing this for your own safety and for our, and for our own as well. Um, you know, we have to do this for, for everybody else. So we're going to cast you out, but we do we do still care about you we do still love yeah. you but this is the way it is um i mean but again it depends on the story <laughs> it does i remember kevin smith and oh god what's his name the surname is his his friend jay i can't remember his surname it's gone out of my head but kevin there was a jay had a real problem with heroin and they got mm -hmm. to a point even though they're basically like brothers and they this they've got this incredibly close friendship they've worked on loads of film scripts and actual films and acting roles and stuff together mm -hmm. um but jay got to the point where he was destroying himself and he kevin smith couldn't get him to do anything to to stop what he was doing and he said well yeah. it's no good you, you've reached the stage now where you're so erratic I can't have you around because I don't trust you around my daughter like this. I don't want her to see this. So it was kind of a temporary form of exile where it's a case of, I can't do anything with you. I love you, yeah. but I'm, I'm pushing you out for now. And Jay did go and get himself sorted out and got himself clean, etc. Now he's completely sober. Um, mm. 
so yeah these sort of things can happen in real life it was a I love you but I really can't do anything with you and you're not interested in my support you're only interested in doing what you're doing so the only way forward is to kind of to, to shove you out at this point yeah which is a horrible thing to have to do but sometimes it's a case of you've got to put your own oxygen mask on first yeah and it can be um, the making of somebody as horrible as it is yes um we're not gonna get too much into that but yes um now obviously this appears in many genres uh but it's especially popular in sci-fi fantasy and historical fiction um it supports enjoyable story arcs about belonging returning um and changing the system as well as learning from mistakes um and in particular found family um you know if you're cast out by the family that you had maybe it's not actually the family that you needed or the family that you really deserved yeah and although we come we, we basically come in on the end of um this sort of exile journey of for a lot of the characters but six of crows is quite a good example because at mm. least four of those the main characters are kind of exiles of one kind or another um, yeah. Even though it's not been from necessarily an organised position, they've been, you know, you've got Inez, who's she's continuing this sort of self-imposed exile because of everything that's happened to her. She feels she can't face her family yet. Um, you've yeah. got Kaz, who's sort of exiling himself from the human race after everything that yes. happened to him. <laughs> that's quite a way of putting it. <laughs> um, and Matthias actually. Act sort of becomes an exile because suddenly he doesn't believe the party line of his people anymore yeah um, nina's a bit of a a different one nina's quite good at fitting in wherever she falls yeah though of course you know it's the thing that she she obviously hasn't gone back to ravka she's a she was a soldier and stuff like that uh, but she has held off because of matthias yeah you know um but yeah it's it's a it's a really really good example of it and obviously they do they do it well in six of crimes yeah. another example that works for me is okay these books are slightly dated now but that is gene emmel's earth's children series um certainly the mm -hmm. first four books um in the first book isla who is a young cromanian child is mm -hmm. adopted by a neanderthal tribe and obviously she never fits in because they are literally different species um yeah. and the the way that that particular clan the neanderthal tribe um operates is that women have a very subservient role and there's all sorts of reasons both biological and socio social sociological sorry conditioned um that play into that but isla isn't mm. the same species so she keeps stepping over the line and she steps over it to the point where she is placed under a death curse um, the death curse in this instance basically means that everybody in the clan will cease to see her. They don't literally cease to see her, but it is a, a form of organised ostracism where yeah. they say you're dead and you, you literally are dead to the clan. So she is just left at, I think she's perhaps 10 or 11, um, mm -hmm. looking after herself for one month in winter in, in um, prehistoric in the sort of Pleistocene era where yeah she's just well no it would be Neolithic anyway she's she's just by herself and 
it looks at the, the terrible isolation and loneliness that she feels from it. Um, yeah. And then there's other instances where she then gets permanently death cursed and just cast out. So she goes off to find her own people, people who are like her, and ends up yeah. spending several years in a cave by herself. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's difficult. It's a survivor story, um, and she's very much exiled because she can't fit in. Not completely. Doesn't matter what she tries to do, she cannot ever completely fit in. Um, even though generally they were kind, they took her in and they cared for her when she would have almost certainly died as a five-year-old girl. Mm, yeah. Um, it makes me think there's... And now I can't remember what the character's name is. But in The Dragon Prince, uh, one of the most recent series, you find out, obviously, uh, one of the, the main characters, uh, she's an elf. She has she basically goes back to her home village and she discovers that something similar has happened, where basically they have... It's not so much a, a, a death curse in that they've actually put um they've done a, a ritual which means that they literally cannot see her she is literally invisible to them so and she cannot see their faces their faces become completely blank um and it's it's a, basically a form of uh kind of she's been um cast out um because it appears that she betrayed um the group um with her uh, with her mission her mission was she was sent on a mission to basically go and kill uh the king and everybody else died in the process but she didn't yeah and therefore they kind of know that she kind of ran off or that something didn't go as it should have gone um and it's this terrible awful moment <laughs> um where yeah she's suddenly gone everybody including the people who raised me have completely isolated themselves from me um to the point that they literally cannot see me they've decided that it doesn't matter if i do return they don't even want to physically be able to know that i exist yeah you know um and god it was such a simple thing but it, it hit so hard yeah it really did yeah definitely Okay, our second type is the outcast. Uh, this is mm -hmm. very similar to the exile in lots of ways, except that this person has never been on the inside, so they've never really felt like they belonged. Um, yeah. Usually outcasts are outcast due to personal attribute or a sins of the father scenario rather than a specific crime or rule violation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, this is the exile narrative with teeth. It can support a great anti-hero arc, or conversely, it can ridicule and point out societal issues by having the outcast make good despite being rejected by society. Yeah. <laughs> um, some examples of this, uh, uh, Sonia from The Black Magician. Um, this is a kind of a two-way thing in that she she did have family so she wasn't you know outcast from the beginning she did have someone who loved her and supported her in the form of her aunt and her uncle um but she was an outcast in terms of the society the group that she was in um and obviously this becomes doubly so in that she goes off to become a magician she's now an outcast of her own people she's an outcast of the magicians and then she becomes a doubly doubly outcast by becoming a black magician by becoming a black magician yes um so um 
she's very much kind of outside of sort of the remit. What's interesting is that we talked about Kaz Brecker um, as sort of being exiled. Um, and what's funny is that Kaz Brecker is is an exile in that he did he was part of society he did have a brother he had a family and stuff like that um he was you know a kind of a respectable member of society that was kind of then exiled and sort of made into an outcast um but the whole narrative that he's putting forward is that he is just an outcast that he was literally born into this yeah um, it's kind of part of his whole mythos rather than the fact that it's like, no, I, don't, I grew up on a farm. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I wasn't exactly scraped out of the streets yeah. in Kettertown. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Nona Gray in the red, in red in Mark Lawrence's um, series, uh, this is from Red's, Red Sister is the first one, I believe. Oh, God, I've gone completely brown. Yeah, it's Red Sister, Grey Sister, Holy Sister. Um, Nona Gray is basically an illegitimate child. Um, she's unwanted and she has some unusual attributes which people don't like very much. And then mm-hmm. she kills somebody by accident. She just kind of freaks out like a cat. Um, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Sorry. That's such a weird... Well, ah! the problem just is murder. she has these... Um, she has basically this genetic sport... Um, type trait whereby she's got floor blades. Floor blades aren't technically um, real except when the person who has them uses them. So she'll swipe her hand at somebody and if she does it in a panic what she's actually done is scored their throat open with four blades. Oh no. Um, and she you know she was a child she didn't know what she was doing and she didn't realize that she had some weird sort of um, ancient bloodlines from the ancestors in her in her system as well um anyway she goes off to what is kind of a magical school but really it's kind of like a martial arts type school full of martial arts Mm -hmm. nuns and they're all i mean i can say this from having been to a convent school that nuns are bloody tough but these nuns just put the ones i grew up with completely in the shit Um, and and yeah, it it sort of follows her. It's a sort of fantasy coming of age type story, but at the same time, it's looking at things like rebalancing injustice and um, balancing things like privilege and and poverty and stuff. It's a, yeah. it's a really good series. Uh, slightly slightly more grim dark than maybe people. It's not grim dark. It's more dark fantasy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I was just thinking Jane Eyre as well. Yeah, she's very much an outcast. I didn't want to put that down just in case I talk about Jane Eyre too much. But yeah, she starts off completely <laughs> outcast. People can't know that I love Jane Eyre. <laughs> oh, I think that ship has sailed. To be honest, yeah, that's that's gonna say um, they already do. I mean, to be honest, Heathcliff is an outcast as well. Yes, he is. Yeah, but we talk about Wuthering Heights a lot, so. <laughs> Um, And my last example, I mentioned Penny Blade a while back, specifically in Mm. conjunction with um, the episode we did on varying different types of gay characters. Um, But Kyra is very definitely an outcast. This is partly imposed by the people, partly imposed by herself, Mm. and partly the fact that, you know, elves in this universe are basically pansexual. You know, (laughs) anything Mm. goes. There's no imbalance between males and females in terms of strength and size disparity, so it's not it's generally all sex is kind of consensual 
um, which yeah. is why the females evolved this thing where every so once a year they go into heat and they have uh, the elves all get together and have these massive massive orgies it's a very graphic As you do. book um <laughs> kyra is a fraternal twin and the weird twist with fraternal twins is that the male twin will always always want other males and nobody else and the female will always want other women and nobody else um so she's kind of an outcast because she cannot she can't join in in the same level with everybody else she can't desire everybody it's kind of like no i like women yeah so it's kind of, it's interesting in that respect and then she gets thrown out into the human world basically and the humans are all kind of like well the elves are basically demons so yeah <laughs> and they keep seducing us watch that one she'll have your wife on her back before you can say yeah. <laughs> so yeah it, it, interesting character journeys for all of those ones Okay, so the next one is the Hermit. So this character has self-imposed exile upon themselves. Now this is different to the other ones where sometimes it is a little bit self-imposed but there's, there is a social kind of situation as well where other people are also kind of pushing them out um, whether they want to or they don't want to. This is very much, it's 100% their decision. Now this decision can still be because they feel like they have to, so they might not want to, uh, but they they feel like they have to for whatever reason, but it is self-imposed. Um, it can be a form of self-punishment, it can be a deliberate choice in order to develop a skill or to accomplish a task, so they might go, okay, I need to go and do this on my own. Um, a good example of someone who tried to be a hermit but failed spectacularly um, was Frodo. <laughs> Frodo was part of the fellowship and just went, actually having people here complicates the issue a lot because the ring keeps affecting all of them. So I'm going to go off and, and have to be a hermit. Um, and then Samwise Ganji <laughs> came up and was like, nope. <laughs> yeah. No, you're not. Um, so that's attempted hermitry, but it didn't quite succeed. Um, now, the hermit character supports an interesting exploration of how society can fail an individual or how a character can become disillusioned with an organisation they once held in high esteem. Um, it can also tap into the fairy tale impossible task scenario and explore quiet, desperate courage. Yeah, so a good example, certainly of the latter, is uh, Sorica in Daughter of the Forest by Juliette Murillier, mm -hmm. uh, which is yeah. basically a retelling of the Twelve Wild Swans fairy tale, where she has to spin shirts out of nettles, except it's Star Wars, so it's so much worse in this one. Um, and yeah, she she is a 13-year-old girl and she spends nearly three years spinning shirts in a cave by herself and it's um, the, the terrible loneliness of being that person by yourself and having to be silent and you know keep yourself safe by staying away from everyone and also hiding yeah. from the sorceress who's um, turned your brothers into swans as well. Yeah. Um, so there's, there is that. I, that it obviously doesn't make up the, the entire bulk of the book it's quite a short section of it really but it feels quite like quite a long time because you know that a couple of years are passing yeah um and obviously she goes through some really horrific stuff yeah um throughout that which is awful and i think that the, the the big thing is that is not so much that she just can't you know talk it's that she kind of has to go through these things and she literally has no 
release. There's no one she can commiserate with. There's no one whom she can really talk to. And there's only, I think, one sort of time is that every, I think it's every year or something like that, her brothers can return to normal. It's twice but a only year f- on the... Yeah, twice a year. Yeah, yeah, on the solstices, I think. Yeah, but it's it's only for a very short period of time. And there is this one time where they basically they return to normal to discover that she's been attacked um and so they all go off and it's <laughs> it kind of actually it's a little bit heartbreaking because obviously at that moment she also doesn't particularly want company but it's this sort of moment where she's on her own but then she really really is on her own yeah you know it hits hard <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, another example, a slightly more self-imposed exercise, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, mm-hmm. We always sort of had this sort of, why is he living in a desert? In ta- Well, the Tatooine is a desert. Why is he living off yeah. in the wilds by himself? Um, obviously, it's to keep an eye on Luke Skywalker, uh, the young child of Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker. But in the recent series on Disney+, Plus, which is very good, by the way, um, you mm. get to see a bit more of how disillusioned he became with the Jedi Order, with how easily it fell with the, the fact that the Empire took over and democracy just died. And yeah. yeah, there's a certain amount of self-punishment going on there as well because he failed. He failed his calling. Um, yeah. And I think it was a really interesting exploration um, of the, the character and sort of the hermitage. I mean, he is trying to accomplish a task, but he's also kind of hiding in the sense of hiding from his responsibilities because he failed before. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, that's a very interesting storyline. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so the next one is The Castaway. Um so this is accidental exile so usually uh through the character being the lone survivor of a disaster of some kind so this is not intentional um this is a very internal story about how the character keeps hold of themselves during extreme isolation um or you kind of basically how they how they survive so it's it's used uh, like you know in thriller sort of survival stories things like that um, <laughs> it's not really rom-com kind of stuff for obvious reasons um, and it supports the human versus nature storylines, survival storylines apocalypse storylines yeah um, uh, one really good example of this is Mark Watney in The Martian where yeah. they think he, his crew thinks he's dead um, he gets yeah. lost during a sandstorm on Mars and they take off without him and then he obviously the, the, he gets a stab wound basically through his suit but the blood actually coagulates and blocks the hole so he wakes up and realises he's on Mars alone by himself and he's absolutely fucked yeah <laughs> and it, it is basically Robinson Crusoe in space um, in my opinion it's better than Robinson Crusoe <laughs> it's, it's really really well done so someone did calculations about how much money Hollywood has spent on saving Matt Damon from space. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a lot. It's a lot of money. Um, but yeah, um, another really good example of this, a very literal example of this is Castaway, um, which is a brilliant film. I have to admit, I've only really seen the last sort of 20 minutes when he gets rescued. 
But those 20 minutes were so harrowing. I kind of thought, I'm not sure I want to watch the rest of that it it is really really harrowing and what's i mean they did a fantastic job obviously and it's very memeable now with wilson obviously the football um that that actually there's a moment and sorry spoilers but i think most people already know it in that he he decides right okay i can't just survive on this island anymore i've got to kind of build this raft and kind of get off it and this whole time he's had this relationship with this football which has got a bloody handprint on it which is kind of in the shape of a face now um he has arguments with wilson like there's an earlier bit where he has an argument with wilson and he throws wilson and wilson fall like kind of goes out too far into the sea and he's like oh god and there's this whole kind of emotional thing where he gets wilson back and so they actually very cleverly managed to do this complete outcast story where he has this very strong relationship throughout with this with this inanimate football um because he's so alone and you know it's obviously so harrowing and there is this amazing a uh, horrible really sad moment where you've kind of you've watched it all throughout and he's he's on this raft and he's drifting and he wakes up and he sees that Wilson has fallen off the raft and is bobbing away um and having watched this at that moment you know he gets out and he tries to swim and he tries to sort of get Wilson back but he can't let go of the raft at the same time because otherwise you know he'll die um and I remember watching it thinking, I'd let go of the raft to go and get Wilson. And then thinking, what the hell am I <laughs> thinking? Because they had built this relationship yeah. so thoroughly, so convincingly. Um, and then, of course, he's just lying on the raft, crying and calling after Wilson. And I'm like, this should be really, it should be silly. You should be like, it's just a football. But it wasn't. They built it up this whole thing where you really understood it you understood the the mindset that he was in to the extent that you we as an audience had actually formed an attachment to this football as well i think the thing was that's where i came in and saw the film from and even though i hadn't seen that build up of relationship i was kind of like oh my god this is terrible this is so traumatic it really is um but it was you know and again it was a perfect example of kind of how unnatural isolation is to the point that when isolation hits we will do anything um we will form attachments with anything um in order to to kind of survive it and i do think it's also one of the reasons without kind of wanting to kind of get too much into it why you know people say oh you know elderly people why do they adopt dogs and cats and stuff like that when they know that they're going to die before them it's just cruel and isolation is one of the the worst things that most elderly people face they literally spend days and days and days without any company at all without conversation at all um you know which is horrifying really it's really really terrible um and so you understand why a lot of them say i need an animal of some kind i need something because interaction with with an animal can actually really really make a big difference in terms of mental health in terms of disrupting isolation and it's why also with isolated storylines you might sometimes then if it's not a human if it's not a you know a dependent of some kind it will be they'll adopt a dog they will you know something like that i mean even at the beginning of anastasia when she's on her own she gets a little dog yeah you know (laughs) 
Um, going from a real life example here, um, this would have been pre-Madeline being on the scene, but in uh, uh, 1987, uh, Terry Waite mm -hmm. was travelling as a special envoy on behalf of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Bruntsey, hoping to secure the release of the British journalist John McCarthy and various other Western mm. cap captives. Uh, this was in Lebanon, and he was taken hostage mm -hmm. by the Hezbollah. Um, he was incarcerated, and he spent much of that time, incarcerated time just kept in the dark by himself uh, yeah. for 1,763 days and was finally released on November the 18th, 1991. I remember all of this happening. Yeah. Um, and a lot of what he did was he created this rich inner fantasy life where he was still with his family and kind of projected it outside of him because he was just mm. alone in the dark and how he survived and survived with most of his sanity intact was to give himself this idea that he wasn't alone that his family was with him yeah i'm not probably describing that very well but it, i just think it's a really interesting i mean you can look it up if you're interested but um, I just think it's a really interesting example of, yeah, a, a, a situation of enforced isolation like that, a castaway type situation. Your mind will do all sorts of very strange and very clever and also quite frightening things in order to try and keep you alive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because as we said, we're not built for it. Yeah. Okay, so the next one is the isolated villain. Now, this is the exile or the outcast, but with a bit of a twist. Instead of being superior to their circumstances and being and becoming wiser and more compassionate, this is the start of a revenge arc or a villain origin story, um, or is kind of like the next step in a villain origin story. Yeah. Uh, we tend to find it in political fantasy, uh, superhero arcs, dark fantasy. Um, think the lone magician character. Yeah, definitely. Um, I do have another example that I'll say in a minute, but weirdly I'm thinking of the old Su Christopher Reeve Superman film. <laughs> where <laughs> yeah. I think it's Superman 2 and you see the other Kryptonians imprisoned in what is basically a parallelogram and they're like zooming through space i don't know if you've seen it this is typical 80s sci-fi um but they're imprisoned in this sort of pocket dimension admittedly there's four of them and they're together but they're isolated from mm. their own society and when they do get out krypton has been blown to smithereens yeah and i think you get an element of that with some of the newer superman films as well they tap into that i mean th these are criminals these are war criminals and there is an issue there uh, but there is also that sense of you've been completely isolated from everything you knew, from your society, from your planet, from your home, your families. Everything you stood for is gone. Yeah. And yes, they are technically the villains, but after that isolation, they're very definitely the villains. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, it is an interesting one um, because... It also goes to, just as we talked about the fact that you can be a saint with other people, um, it's very easy to be a saint, sorry, it's very easy to be a saint when you're separated from other people. Being separated from other people is, it's also kind of very easy to be the worst version of yourself as well. Yeah. Um, if you spend a lot of time being isolated, um, 
you can uh, people can actually learn to be less empathetic um this might be for you know survival reasons of well in this case literally the only important thing is for me to survive and therefore you take on that mindset so you no longer play by societal rules you no longer say okay but actually we need to think of society as a whole it's no i need to think about myself only 100 percent, which can be the start of kind of a very interesting villain story where they've basically said the world taught me isolation taught me that the only one who's going to take care of me is me so i don't care about anybody else yeah yeah definitely um my other example is baru cormorant in the masquerade series by seth dickinson and this is an interesting one in the sense that baru is never actually isolated from people in the sense of there's mm. always people around um, but she joins the masquerade and she joins the masquerade even though the masquerade is it, being gay in the masquerade is completely verboten and she yeah. is a lesbian I mean they don't call it lesbian in the book but that's essentially the issue so she is always hiding part of herself and the reason she joined the masquerade was she wants to bring it down from the inside and yet this yeah. isolation this being surrounded by people who all embrace or at least outwardly embrace and endorse the, uh, this idea that being gay in any way is kind of um, deviant and not only deviant but should be punished by death mm -hmm. isolates her from people to the point where she actually does become a villain a, a really really competent villain in fact um, there is a lot of tragedy woven into those books it's very very clever and it's basically political economic fantasy um, there's no dragons mm. or anything it's just this imagined world um and it looks at a lot of colonialism and stuff like that um yeah. but but yeah she, I, this is a, a typical case of an isolated person through one thing or another literally becoming the villain mm. yeah um, and you made a really, really good and very important point there, which is that isolation, when we, some of the examples we've given, obviously, um, has been very much, they're literally kind of in the wild. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't need to be the case at all. Isolation can happen in a city. It can happen when you're surrounded by people. Um, it can happen like even within your own family and stuff like that, uh, where again, it can be more of an emotional isolation because they don't understand you um, or you are hiding who you really are from them or, or you're in the middle of a city uh, you're surrounded by people but you have made no connections with them for whatever reason. That is also a type of isolation. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I, sorry, I, I just want to say <laughs> one of the things which for me totally proves the fact that we are kind of made to kind of be social creatures is, and this is going to sound like a really silly example, but freshers fair at universities, yeah. right? Where it's amazing, where basically for like a week you've got a bunch of teenagers who will basically be like, I will befriend anyone <laughs> I will talk to anyone. And you, and, and, uh, and, and you end up with a bunch of really odd, you end up with a really odd collection of people and then gradually you sort of pair out the ones you actually form a relationship with. Yeah, absolutely. But it's like, it's literally like, okay, I'm in a queue with someone. I'm going to start talking to this person in the queue. Most people 
you know, across, and I'm talking just like in Britain, you know, in Britain, if we're, if we're just in England, if you talk to someone else in the queue, you're a lunatic. No, that's, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, it's kind of, don't... You get the polite, oh, yes, it is, isn't it? Sort of, and everybody yes. looks in the opposite directions to each other. Yeah, absolutely. It's like you've got to kind of nod at your neighbours for like a decade before you're allowed to have any form of communication beyond, oh, I'm taking the bins out or something like that. You know, but but during Freshers Fair, it's literally like, no, I'm going to I'm going to start a conversation with pretty much everybody. Um, and it is this desperate of I don't know anybody, so I have to form a social group now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so, so in conclusion... <laughs> in conclusion, isolation can create great characterization, but not by itself. That's a very convoluted yeah. statement. Isolation can create great characterization, but not by itself. The point is the isolation in contrast with the character then interacting with other characters can create great characterization, I think, is, is the main point. Yeah, if you are writing an entire story where someone is isolated, which can be done as shown by things like Castaway, um, you have to balance it in some form or another. So in Castaway, obviously, they did have Wilson. Wilson did not speak at any point because Wilson was a football. But um, <laughs> it would have got very surreal. <laughs> it would have got very surreal otherwise. Um, but you know, there was he did actually. Uh, the guy did end up having. I was just Tom Hanks. It's just Tom Hanks. I know he has a character name, but it's Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks did end up, you know, having did have conversations with Wilson, and we would kind of get the reply in how. Tom Hanks responded to Wilson, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, so, and obviously it, it, this it's a very typical kind of story. You also get it with things like, uh, uh, was it 24, the guy based on the true story of the climber who got stuck, yeah. who got his arm stuck. Um, and the way that he did that, he, I think he started to hallucinate and stuff like that. Um, you know, uh, in that it was broken up. The narrative was broken up. Um, so you can do it, but there are techniques, obviously, that need to be employed in order to make it, you know, enjoyable so that it doesn't kind of become monotonous and difficult to read. Um, but one of the most crucial ways of doing it is basically to say, once this character is an outcast for whatever reason, what is then going to disrupt them being an outcast? Yeah, definitely. Um, you can tell great adventure and survival stories, as we've said, and... There's, there's something very funny about those stories but once again you only really get a satisfying end to those stories when people come out of the wild don't you yeah absolutely um the important thing to remember is that people become become a bit peculiar when they're forced to be alone or they're ostracized um when we think about how much of society shapes who we are um in terms of you know in terms of behaviors societal expectations etc um you know i i know very personally that if i'm alone in the house i will talk to myself um now most people will do that despite this like oh you're talking to yourself um the fact of the matter is is that is 2020 to uh <laughs> to take had to think about that for a second uh, <laughs> most people acknowledge that we do talk to ourselves um but you know people will develop peculiar habits or they will basically start to do things in order to comfort themselves in order to survive and also because they're not kind of being corrected by society and i say corrected in terms of being sort of told to stop it by society yeah. so um 
that can also be very interesting in terms of saying I'm gonna I want to actually explore a different kind of character or I want to take this character and I want to see what happens to them when they're kind of removed from the society which made them who they are or shaped them yeah um and I mean so here's a question Jules have you you know is this a trope that you've ever tapped into? Um, I don't think it's one I've really fully explored. I think you get sort of the edge of sort of emotional isolation with some people. So, uh, for example, with M in I Belong to the Earth, she's kind of very mm. emotionally isolated from everyone around her because of her grief. Um, I think you get it more with Steve, to be honest, because he never really fits in. And <laughs> it, it's very much other people get hold of him and drag him out kind of thing yeah i would agree i would also say that there's a little bit of it in the second book as well with M, in that she goes to a friend's house thinking you know she's going to have this connection and she ends up being very isolated instead yeah um which kind of and she's also obviously been isolated from you know uh from kieran at this point and things like that which kind of puts her into interesting perspective and then in the sort of following book she sort of creates the self-isolation based on the events that happen in the in the second book yeah yeah definitely so we do kind of get touches of it yeah and i and i would say that obviously at the end of the sons of festian rufus kind of goes into i mean he runs off he goes into exile yeah um, he is breaking the law because he's a magi um, and they are accountable. He's basically like a government, you know, they, the, the magi have to have, they're controlled because obviously they're very powerful. Um, and so people don't really want magis running around doing other stuff. Um, and so he disappears and he kind of becomes uncontactable. And so, there, you know, there's this whole sort of actually, that's not really allowed. We kind of need to know where you are. <laughs> at all times because you're essentially a weapon uh for this country and we don't like the fact that you know you could be out there teaching other people you could be out there doing all sorts of stuff that we don't approve of um so um yeah he obviously does get a little bit isolated but this is very balanced by the fact that he um he does have a little a little boy with him as well because yeah. he has joshua with him um so yeah, I think it's it's something that we've we've both touched on um in our writing. And it's a very interesting trope. Um it's very interesting in in all its forms. Um and it comes with its challenges as well. Yeah, definitely. It it's an interesting I mean, I think even if you're going to do it as like a short story or something, it's an interesting thing mm. to explore. You might not want to do an entire book like that, but Yeah. Um, you can certainly, <laughs> I mean, you could. <laughs> you, could. you can certainly draw in you know threads of this in how people yeah. act and interact with each other definitely yeah absolutely well on that note uh we've <laughs> we've come to the end of our episode um what do you guys think are there any examples of outcast characters that you really really like um are there some that you've actually felt no this didn't work for me do you think we've missed out on some of the sort of the sub tropes within that do let us know remember you can get in contact with us via our facebook our tumblr or our twitter both individually or through the dissecting dragons pages before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and this week jules you've got one for us yes i recently finished a book called dead silence by s.a barnes um this is 
kind of like if The Shining was taking place on the Titanic, but the Titanic was a space cruiser, a luxury space cruiser <laughs> that had been missing for 20 years. Um, it's a really good book. It's got alien vibes, even though there's no aliens or anything in it, but it, that the sense right. of isolation and space, etc., sort of feels very like the first alien film. And it it starts off with this small crew on a basically a little mining vessel and they're mm -hmm. basically they're, the ship is going to be defunct the crew are being disbanded and the captain of the crew claire who was basically brought up by that particular corporation because she was the last known survivor of um this outpost um mm -hmm. is going to be given a desk job she's not really qualified for anything else and she hates the idea she hates the idea of not being back out in space because unbeknownst to everybody else claire sees ghosts and okay. she finds being around <laughs> other people quite difficult because of this um yeah. so when they find this <clears throat> this wrecked luxury space cruiser um basically intact but weirdly just drifting like a ghost ship in space um it's the thing that tips her over the edge to go no we won't just call it in we'll call right of haulage and we'll drive the ship back ourselves and then we'll all be set for life, which in theory sounds good, except lots of weird shit then starts happening on this this ship, this Titanic in space. Of course, of course it does, yeah. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say I personally found it scary, but other people have said they found it epically creepy. I think it's great. It does the classic haunted house thing with a real different twist. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. I thoroughly recommend it. I think, you know, if you're you're, you're up for a bit of sci-fi type horror then you'll really enjoy this one that sounds really really good yeah i mean isolation is one of the core things in in ghost stories and yeah. uh in uh and in the gothic and stuff like that so it, it stands to reason that if you put it in space it just gets so much worse yeah absolutely <laughs> i mean it's not like you could just call someone to come and get you because they could be hundreds of light years away so, yep terrifying <laughs> You and I have very different definitions of fun. Um, anyway. <laughs> and on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.